The following audio is the recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. You can visit our website at strosecc.org. Good morning. That was a fitting song uh, for just before this sermon. It was like a review of everything that we've been seeing for almost the last two years as we've journeyed through the Gospel of Mark. And we are going to conclude our study of this glorious, beautiful gospel this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and one of our church members will bring one to you. This study has blessed my heart uh, and just grown me personally. Um, And I hope that each of you can say the same thing. Um, Just the awesome truth that we've seen throughout this gospel. From the very beginning of the gospel, Mark told us what his intention was, right? In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark wrote this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to tell the good news, the gospel of Jesus. Mark has shown us Jesus' identity, who he is. Mark has shown us Jesus' mission, what Jesus is doing. Jesus, the Son of Man and the Son of God. Jesus' mission to come to give his life as a ransom For his people to bring life where there is death. Just the past few weeks, we've seen the culmination of Jesus' gospel mission. Uh, A few weeks ago, Austin preached about the crucifixion over a couple of sermons. Last week, Ray preached through the burial of Jesus. And this morning, we are going to see the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, At this point in the story, before the resurrection, really the culmination of Jesus' identity and mission is really in question. We are in anticipation. Will he stay dead like all the teachers who came before him? Will his statements about his eternal kingship prove to be true? Is he really the ultimate authority if he can be bound by the grave? Make no mistake, Jesus' identity and his mission hinge on what happens in the resurrection. The resurrection is not just a secondary story attached to the end of the gospel to make us feel good, uh, just to make us feel happy or feel better. It is really the climax This is the crescendo. One commentator uh, writes about the resurrection and says this, The climax to Mark's gospel is the resurrection. Without it, the life and death of Jesus, though noble and admirable, are nonetheless overwhelmingly tragic events. So look with me now at this glorious truth as we see the culmination of Mark's gospel In chapter 16, we will read 
starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll the stone away for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for bringing life where there is death. We thank you for overcoming the grave. Help us to see you in your resurrection life more clearly this morning. Help us to trust your word more this morning. Help us to have a higher view of you and your blessed word. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we're going to do this morning is examine closely Mark's account of the resurrection. Our text this morning is one of the most closely scrutinized and criticized historical narratives in the history of the world, and rightfully so. If a man predicted that he was going to rise from the grave and then it happened, then the account about that should be closely examined. So we're going to examine it closely. Then after we examine the story, the next thing that we're going to do is discuss how Mark ends his gospel. There's some peculiar things that we need to talk about, about the ending of this book. And then lastly, my favorite part of the sermon, we will discuss some final implications of the resurrection. So let's examine this narrative in three scenes. Scene number one the preparation of the women. Scene number two, the experience of the women. And scene number three, the response of the women. Okay, so here we go. Scene number one, the preparation of the women. Look again at verses one through three. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So the first thing that we learn from this scene is that these women have extreme love and devotion for Jesus. The women's preparation of spices and perfumes for anointing was an act of love honor and devotion because they were trying to reduce the stench from his decomposing body. This was the first opportunity that they really had to do this 
they would have anointed his body on Friday, right when he was crucified, but they really ran out of time because the sun was going down at the end of that day, and the Sabbath was approaching on Saturday when they were not lawfully allowed to make preparations and do this type of thing for Jesus. Luke 23 gives us this detail about what was going on. It says, It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and saw how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. So on Sunday morning, these women got up and they were eager to finish their preparations of these spices and perfumes and go and honor the body of their Lord Jesus. These women had been following Jesus for the past two or three years, devotedly seeing him and his teaching and his work, and they loved him. Now, it's not all positive for these ladies, unfortunately, in this scene. The next thing that we see is that these women were not anticipating Jesus' resurrection. They were not anticipating his resurrection. Jesus had explicitly foretold his resurrection at least three times in the Gospel of Mark. He told it in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. So the question is, why would these women take the time to go and anoint the dead body if they were expecting him to rise again, right? So they either forgot about it, they didn't understand, or they didn't believe that it was possible that it was going to happen. These women aren't the only ones that are guilty of this. We know that the other disciples were not looking for the resurrection either. The other gospel accounts tell us that they struggled to believe in the resurrection even after it happened. You remember the story of Jesus appearing to the disciples and they struggled to believe it. Thomas struggled to believe it. He had to touch Jesus' scars in his side. Why did all of Jesus' followers struggle to understand and believe what he was doing in this resurrection? I believe it's because their eyes were not opened to things above. They were not thinking about the things of the Spirit. They were not setting their mind on God's kingdom. Their expectation and their focus was on the things of the earth, the things of the flesh, the things of their earthly Israeli kingdom. We know as we've preached through Mark that these disciples were looking for Jesus to be some kind of earthly king, right? They wanted him to take over Rome. They wanted him to come in and be the the king of Israel. Now, before we are too quick to cast blame and throw these disciples under the bus, how often do we live expecting the return of Christ? Did Jesus promise that he's going to come back? How much do we live in anticipation of his return? 
Let us not be too quick to cast blame on these disciples, but let us learn to set our eyes on God's eternal kingdom. Like their eyes should have been set on the tomb, waiting for him to rise, our eyes should be set on the skies, waiting for his return. Amen? Now, a final thing that we can glean from this scene is that these women were unaware of the chief priests and the Pharisees' attempts to seal the grave. Look at verse 3 again. It says, They were saying to one another, Who is going to roll away the stone from us, for us, from the entrance of the tomb? These women were expecting to be able to access the tomb that morning. They didn't know that the chief priests and the Pharisees had the grave sealed to prevent anybody from getting access. Mark doesn't give us this detail, but Matthew does. Listen to Matthew 27 at what the chief priests and the Pharisees plotted. It says, The next day, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people that he is risen. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. So Pilate told them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. On the Sabbath day, when these chief priests and scribes were supposed to be resting in the work of the Lord, they were actually working against the Lord. What a lesson we can learn here from these chief priests and scribes. They were supposed to be resting in God's work for them, but there they were working against him. They made every attempt to keep Jesus in the grave. But these man-made attempts would prove to be feeble against the power of the Most High God. As the psalmist says, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So, as these women were approaching the tomb, they had no idea what they were about to experience. So let's look at scene number two. The experience of the women. Look again at verses 4 through 6. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. The first thing that we see in this scene is that the stone had been rolled away. Now, Mark doesn't tell us who rolled the stone away, but Matthew does. Matthew 28 says that an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now, something struck me as I uh, was preparing the sermon. 
and was reading uh, Bible scholars about this part, they point out that the angel did not remove the stone to let Jesus out. The angel removed the stone to let the people in, to witness the empty tomb. Jesus did not need the stone to be removed in order to get up and get out of that tomb. We see in the other gospel accounts that after Jesus' resurrection, he was able to bodily appear places and disappear from places without being bound by physical barriers. Death has no authority over him. Time and space have no authority over him. He has all authority in heaven and on earth given to him. The next thing that we see in this scene is the presence of the angel or angels. Verse 5 says, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. Now, John's gospel tells us that Mary Magdalene bolts right when she sees that the stone is rolled away from the tomb, and she doesn't uh, get to encounter this angel with the other ladies. So the other ladies are there, and they encounter this angel as they linger and look into the tomb. Now, you heard me say angels. I want to take a moment here and talk about um, something about the resurrection narratives. I believe this is important for us to see. I want to discuss supposed differences that we see in the gospel accounts of the resurrection. If you read Matthew and Mark, one angel is mentioned at the tomb. If you read Luke and John, two angels are mentioned at the tomb. For example, let's look at Matthew's account in Matthew 24. Matthew writes, And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood beside them in dazzling apparel. So, The crucial question that we must ask is whether it is a contradiction for Matthew's account to mention two angels and for Mark's account to mention the one. Don't be discouraged. It is not a contradiction. And let me give you an illustration why. All right, so stick with me on this illustration here. So let's say me and Randy. Where are you at, Randy? Let's say me and Randy walk off this stage and we go over into the, uh, the nursery room right over here and we stand there for a little bit and we observe what's happening in the nursery. And then let's say we come back in here into the sanctuary and I sit down with Drew. Where's Drew? I sit down with Drew and I give him a report uh, to write down of what I witnessed. And then Randy goes and sits down with Bethany and gives Bethany a report of what he witnessed for her to write down. Now, let's say when we read Drew's account of my report, it may say there were eight kids in that room, and they said that their teachers are showing them a cool story in the Gospel of Mark. Then we may go and we read Bethany's account of Randy's eyewitness report, And it may say, 
There was a kid in that room who said this morning he is learning about the resurrection in the Bible. Are these reports contradictory? No. I chose to include the detail about the exact number of kids in what I told to Drew. Right? Where's my spot? I lost my spot. (laughs) Yeah, I chose to include... Oh, yeah, so... I chose to include the detail of the exact number of kids. For me, that one child was speaking on behalf of all of the other children in the room. I also chose to include the detail about the book of the Bible that they were studying. Randy chose to focus his account on the one kid who made a specific statement about what they were learning. He also chose to be more detailed about the story that they were studying, but not the exact book. So I believe this is important for us to see because this is how the Gospels were written. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were recording the eyewitness accounts of those who experienced the resurrection. They are retelling it from those eyewitnesses' perspectives. So... The reason I'm taking the time to talk about this and share this with you is because the enemy is out to discourage you from trusting God's word. There are are multiple things like this in the gospel accounts of the resurrection that non-believers and skeptics uh, get out there on YouTube and, and the internet and they start saying that these are contradictions they fail to dig deep enough to explain to you how these accounts can be harmonized into a consistent story, okay? Now, the final thing that we see in this scene is really the climax of this entire resurrection account, and that is the resurrection testimony of the angel. Listen again to verses 6 and 7. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. This is testimony from heaven. Amen. This is divine revelation. The angel is God's messenger sharing what God has done. This testimony is specific. It's direct. The Jesus that they know is named, the Jesus that they know is attested to have been crucified, the Jesus that they know is attested to have been buried in that exact grave, and the Jesus that they know is attested to have been raised. In Acts 2.24, Peter preached this. God raised Jesus from the dead. This reveals what God has done. God has raised Jesus up. Skeptics, again, have tried to argue against the gospel's account of the empty tomb. And they come up with all kind of different theories. There's multiple theories out there. Some say that Jesus was not truly dead. Others argue that his body was stolen. 
Muslims try to argue that his body was swapped right before death. No other explanation holds water under intense historical critique. The resurrection is the only reasonable explanation able to adequately reconcile the facts surrounding this event and the testimonies and the history in the years following this event. If you want more historical support for the resurrection, there is a plethora of it, and we would love to help you see it. It's a, it's a beautiful and assuring thing, and it is, it's blessed my, my soul to study the resurrection and the historicity of it. Now, on that note, something else significant to note about this scene which supports the historical accuracy of this account. If this story were to be fabricated, why would the fabricators use the testimony of women? Listen to what one Bible scholar says about how the testimony of women was considered in that day. He says this, that all four Gospels agree that a group of women discovered the empty tomb is significant. For women were not generally treated as reliable witnesses in first century Judaism. Some scholars say women were considered ineligible witnesses under Jewish practice of law. The gospel's agreement, therefore, is strong evidence for the historicity of this event. If the disciples had invented this story, they are unlikely to have made women the primary witnesses of the tomb. And one more note um, about this revelation to women, uh, speaking about uh, you ladies. This has been a pattern in the New Testament since the coming of Jesus. Remember, it was to a woman, Mary, that the announcement of Jesus being conceived was first given. It was to a woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, that the announcement of Jesus as Messiah was first given. It was to a woman, or to women, these women at the resurrection, that the announcement of Jesus being raised was given. Why is this so significant? Because women were not treated with much dignity in this culture of this day. So this was counter-cultural. The Lord is restoring the dignity of women. The Lord is not submissive to cultural norms or practices that are antithetical to his good design. Now, the final thing to note in this scene is that the angel singles out somebody by name. Did y'all see it? The angel singles out Peter by name. Why would the angel single out Peter by name? Well, I believe we are seeing God's grace and forgiveness on display here toward Peter. Do you remember what Peter was doing the last time we saw him in Mark's gospel? In Mark 14, we saw Peter denying any association with Jesus. Peter broke down under the pressure, public pressure, and he betrayed and disowned his Lord and his friend. Because of this, Peter's probably thinking to himself that he is no longer worthy to follow Jesus. 
or to be associated with his disciples. He might think that the Lord wants nothing to do with him. But we see God graciously send a message to these women to communicate to Peter that Jesus wants to meet him. What a picture of God's grace and forgiveness. The final scene, scene number three, the response of the women. Look at it with me now in verse eight. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The first thing to note about this scene is the amount of emotion that these women were experiencing. Mark uses the words seized, trembling, astonishment, afraid. Why were the women so fearful? There's lots of reasons that they could have been fearful. A couple of them are they may be afraid that the Jews are going to find out that Jesus is alive, and they're going to go and try to kill him again. They might be afraid of the Jews killing them for spreading the message that the angel is giving to them. But I think the most obvious reason that they're afraid is because they just encountered transcendent beings. And they just heard a message about Jesus' transcendence in his resurrection. Now, let's take a moment here to say a few words about Jesus' transcendence and our finiteness, our inferiority. Throughout Mark's gospel, fear is a consistent reaction of people when they, experiences, when they experience Jesus' transcendent dignity. Y'all remember uh, Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration? Mark 9 says, this is what Peter did. Peter goes, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Remember when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water in Mark 6. It says, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought that it was a ghost and they cried out, For they all saw him and they were terrified. Why would humans be so afraid in the presence of such transcendence? It's because we are not transcendent. We have the stain of sin and corruption upon us. We have the curse of death within us. Ephesians chapter 2 says, apart from Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sins. So you could understand why people would be so fearful when they encounter such a living, pure transcendence. It's because they realize who they are in the light of the transcendent glory of God and who he is. Now, the next thing to note about this scene is that the women departed and they were silent. The women departed and they were silent. Verse 8 says, they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now, initially, these women were so overwhelmed with fear that they were silent. But Matthew gives us more detail about what was going on in these women's hearts 
and minds as they left the tomb. Listen to Matthew 28. He says, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And he came up and took hold, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Matthew's more detailed account tells us that these women were feeling a conflict of emotions in their heart fear as well as joy. So, what does Jesus do for these women in the midst of their fear? Jesus meets them in their fear. They may have been reluctant to say anything at first. They may not have known what to say. They may not have known how to say it. But in this moment, Jesus shows up. He encourages their hearts. He calms their fears. He is there with them. He is not dead. He tells them the same thing that the angel told them. Don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. And this is the type of assurance that we see given repeatedly all throughout the Bible when humans encounter transcendent beings. And this is a gracious thing that the Lord does for them. And this is our only hope. Our only hope for deliverance from fear like these women had. Our only hope for deliverance from sin and death and the stain upon us, the curse upon us, is that Jesus is alive. It's that Jesus is there. We have access to joy in the Father through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. And we must submit to him and find our greatest joy in him. These women found joy in him when they beheld his presence on the road there. Okay? So we have concluded our examination of this narrative. Now let's talk about the ending of Mark. Um, It's very interesting, the way that Mark ends his gospel. If you look in your Bible, if you take it out and you look at it, it, at the end of verse 8, between verse 8 and the next section you'll probably see written in brackets this. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. This section, uh, 9 through 20, at the end of Mark is called the long ending of Mark. And there is debate about whether this portion of Mark's gospel should be treated as canonical. Fancy word. Canonical means treated as the inspired word of God. We have decided here at our church not to preach this text and treat it as non-canonical. Now, we don't have time this morning to go into deep detail about why, but thankfully, one of our church members, Brother Austin D. Armand, has done a lot of good research on this topic and, and this text And tonight at 6 p.m., he is going to be presenting a position paper on this to talk about the reasons why we treat this uh, portion of Mark 
the way that we do and the different views that are out there about it. So plug to come back tonight at 6 p.m. It's going to be beautiful. But I want to say a few brief words about it this morning for us. There are two crucial questions that we need to uh, answer about this long ending of Mark. The first question is, did Mark write it? I'm going to quote a couple of Bible scholars here, uh, Longman and Garland. Here is what they say about this question. Did Mark write this? There is overwhelming evidence, both internal and external, that verses 9 through 20 were not composed by Mark. Their style and vocabulary are non-Markan, and their content is clearly secondary. So, again, we'll discuss that even more tonight, but there is a brief review for you. The second question is this. Did Mark intend to end his gospel at this point, or was the original ending lost? Again, these Bible scholars say, a decision on this issue is very difficult with excellent scholars on both sides. Some commentators argue that the abrupt ending is intentional and it fits well with Mark's narrative purpose. Now, regarding the notion that the ending might have been incomplete or lost, they say this, while it's possible that Mark was unable to complete his work, perhaps because of persecution or martyrdom, it seems more likely that the ending was lost before it could reproduce by copyists. A single page of the papyrus could have come loose from the binding of the original codex, uh, perhaps while the document was in transport. Okay? Now, I know as a lot of you are hearing this, um, some of you maybe for the first time, if you've never studied this long ending of Mark before, this might be kind of startling you a little bit or disturbing you some. Let me share a final word from these Bible scholars uh, to encourage you. The uncertainties concerning the ending of this powerful and dramatic gospel can be disturbing for some Christians today. But this need not be so. It must be recognized that for Mark and his readers, the resurrection of Jesus was no way in doubt Rather, it was an indisputable historical fact. Jesus himself, the hero of Mark's story and an absolutely trustworthy character throughout the narrative, has four times referred explicitly to his own resurrection. Now, at the end of the gospel, an angel from God, another trustworthy character in Mark's drama, announces that this prediction has come true. Jesus is risen and his disciples will see him shortly in Galilee. And the evidence throughout the biblical narratives and all the other gospels and then Paul's epistles is overwhelming, testifying about witnessing the risen Christ. Forty or tons of people saw him at one time. He appeared to many people in many places, and there is no historical doubt about this resurrection. So be encouraged um, about this, and I hope you come back tonight to hear Austin teach us how to think rightly about this. Last portion of our sermon this morning, and my favorite part, the implications of the resurrection. What 
are the implications of it? Why is it so important? What does it mean? Six implications. Number one, the weekly calendar for God's people has changed. Before the weekend of the resurrection, the people of God, the Israelites, would Sabbath on Saturday. And that was the day that was treated as most holy for them. After the resurrection, the people of God, Christians, began to gather on Sunday, celebrating it as the Lord's Day, worshiping and remembering when Jesus rose. Now, with that, it's important to remember, I want to make sure to note that worship on the exact day of Sunday is not commanded in the Bible, okay? But it's very important to also know that we are to gather together. And this is the day that God's people have gathered together historically since this time of the resurrection. Another thing important to know about this is that Sunday has not uh, taken the place of the Sabbath as a Christian Sabbath, as if it has to be that for us. Now, we are commanded uh, surely to rest in God and Sabbath, but there is no command as it was in the Old Testament to have a Sabbath day in accordance with the law as the Israelites did. So that's the first implication. The weekly calendar for God's people has changed. The second implication, the resurrection validates who Jesus claimed to be. Jesus, as we said before, predicted his resurrection at least three times in the Gospel of Mark. And the fulfillment of this prediction validates everything about what he said and who he claimed to be, the Son of God. Implication number three, the resurrection of Jesus validates Old Testament prophecies that foreshadowed the resurrection. Psalm 16 says this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Hosea 6 says this, For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was in the belly of the whale for three days and emerged to teach the good news. Jesus was in the tomb for three days and he emerged himself to teach the good news, which is himself. Fourth implication of the resurrection. It reveals that death has been defeated and a way to life has been made. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It is gone in Christ. Fifth implication of the resurrection. Those who believe in him, in Christ, share in his resurrection life. 1 John 5 says, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Jesus confers his life onto those who trust him so that we can share in his triumph over death. We who believe in Jesus will personally experience resurrection because having the life that Jesus gives overcomes death. 
it is impossible for death to win. Implication number six, last one. Christians can face death and persecution because of the hope of the resurrection. Think about the thousands of Christian martyrs who have given their life for their testimony of faith in Jesus. They could persevere in the most extreme circumstances because of the hope of being raised again in Christ. The resurrection has given countless Christians everywhere boldness to go through brutal suffering, to give up their bodies because they had hope of a new body coming one day, new life coming. So in conclusion, the world sees the resurrection as the ultimate unbelievable thing. Dead men stay dead. But God's people see the resurrection as the most obvious thing. Of course God is not going to stay dead. Right, church? Do not restrict your celebration of the resurrection of Jesus to Easter. Don't do that. If you are a Christian, live in his resurrection every day. Every morning you rise from that bed, you remember Jesus and how he rose from the dead and he has blessed you with resurrection life. The most important event in the life of Christ, the most important event in the Bible, the most important event in history, and the most important event in your life is the resurrection of Jesus. The most important decision of your life is what you will do in response to this resurrected Jewish man 2,000 years ago in Israel. How will you respond to the resurrected Son of God? Will you listen to Him? Will you submit to Him? Will you believe in Him? Will you follow Him? Will you die with Him? If so, then praise the Lord, you will be raised with Him one day. Let's pray. Lord, we stand in awe of the gospel. We stand in awe of your resurrection. And we praise you, Lord, for opening the eyes of our hearts to see the glory of Christ. We praise you, Lord, that death no longer has victory. Fear no longer has victory. It doesn't have a grip on us. You have defeated it. And I pray that we as Christians would walk in that victory. I pray that each believer here would remember day by day that you are our righteousness. You are our life. You are our resurrection. We thank you so much for how we have seen Jesus in the gospel of Mark.